Hello and welcome to Saltgrass, a show about how local communities can engage with the climate crisis at a grassroots level. My name is Ali Hanley and today's episode features an interview with Venora Molvena from the Victorian State Government's Department of Health and Human Services, commonly known as the DHHS. This is the first of several interviews that I hope to do looking at the impacts of climate change on human health. Future episodes will involve in-depth conversations about and with people living with disability and climate change and how local governments and local groups work together to ensure people are protected from and cared for through climate change. Before I share this conversation with Venora with you, um, I thought I'd just reflect a little bit on what's been going on since the last episode. There's been both good and bad news in the last couple of weeks. The bad news is very public and is not really unexpected. But for me, it hits pretty hard every time the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, releases a report, which they did last week. I'm sure you've read about it and seen the commentary. It's very sobering. And personally, I found that even though none of it was unexpected, it still pushed up and increased my climate anxiety. I think just because my newsfeed was full of people commenting and lots of all caps messages about what a disaster the climate is. And I had to actively work on settling my physiological response. So breathing deeply and reminding myself that the news isn't 100% bad, the threat's always been there, this is just one more report. It's a very highly respected and important report to listen to and hopefully the governments of the world will listen to it. But one of the things they said is that there's still time. So there is still time. We have time to make changes. We have to act as if it's an emergency. We have to do extreme action to stop emitting carbon and to sequester carbon as quickly as possible if we want to keep climate change in a realm that supports life as we know it. But there is still time. So, you know, I had to do a lot of management of myself in, in seeing all of this bad news and, and people's reaction to it. But people need to react. It's important that people react. And I think panic and anger and upset are entirely appropriate responses to a report like that. And in the next little while, I will hopefully release an episode with some more reflections on that report and also what happened for me personally around the same time as the report, which tied it in for me in a really real way into what it is to be present in an emergency. And so I will release that in a few weeks once I've had time to digest and and get my words straight. So that was the bad news. But the good news is that Saltgrass got listed as a finalist in the Jackson Wild Awards. And this is huge. (laughs) This is an award that's been historically for films that connect people to nature. On their website, they say that Jackson Wild creates an inclusive forum for storytellers to more deeply illuminate connections to the natural world and our collective responsibility to the wild. So David Attenborough and My Octopus Teacher and other wonderful films and filmmakers have been finalists and won the Jackson Wild Award in the past. It's run from a place called Jackson in Wyoming in the USA. And this is the first year that they've opened up a category for podcasts. So I was quite amazed and excited to have been listed as a finalist, but 
Actually, I kind of almost had a panic attack <laughs> when I saw that my fellow finalists were Jane Goodall and a project run by the National Geographic Society. So I grew up reading National Geographic and loving it. And Jane Goodall is like a beacon of nature connection and animal love. And so to have been listed with these two other projects is truly incredible. And I still find it kind of hard to digest. But as a friend of mine said to me, as I stumbled around trying to find words, she said, well, it's the community, isn't it? It's, it's really special. There's a concentration of nature-loving, climate-concerned people here in central Victoria that, you know, isn't to be found in a lot of other places. So all I have to do in producing this podcast is sit down with some people and ask them questions and draw out their stories. And I quite love being in that position and of being able to help share their stories with a wider, now global audience. And so if this show can bring that, then I'm happy. And if this show can bring hope and lessen the feeling of being alone in this impending crisis, then I'm happy. Because none of us are alone in this. The solutions to climate change are already known and the wisdom of the people who've dedicated their lives to understanding it and understanding the complexity and beauty of the natural world, they just need to be heard and we collectively need to act on it. So I've always tried to balance the stories in Saltgrass about the harder more upsetting edge of climate change, which is a little bit about what today's episode is about in talking about, you know, how do we manage human health through climate change? I've always tried to balance those sort of stories with stories about the natural world, because it's always seemed to me that as important as it is to talk about climate change and, and work out how we're going to respond to it, it's equally important to connect people to nature and help foster that sense of love and reverence for nature because we need to do more than just protect the human species. We need to protect the whole world. So thank you, Jackson Wilde, for recognising that saltgrass does this. And thank you for amplifying stories from around the world that also do this. So I highly recommend that you go to the Jackson Wilde website. Um, all of the shortlisted projects, both film and the podcasts, are there. I highly recommend my fellow finalists. Jane Goodall's podcast is called The Hope Cast. And if you want to hear her in conversation with people who find hope in our current times, it's a really good listen. She pulls no punches and she's very direct, <laughs> but she's also gracious and positive and it's really quite a wonderful combination. And the other project that was listed as a finalist is a National Geographic podcast, which is a beautifully told and well-produced with evocative sounds captured in the Af African jungle. And the show is called Guardians of the River. It follows the National Geographic Okavango Wilderness Project team as they journey along the Okavango River Basin that spans Angola, Nambia and Botswana. And the people creating the podcast were involved in a mission to protect this near pristine landscape from increasing threats. So I highly recommend both podcasts and I'll put links to that and Jackson Wilde in the show notes at saltgrasspodcast.com. As ever, before we begin today's interview, I would like to acknowledge that Saltgrass is produced on Jara Country. Jara Country is the traditional home of the Jajarung people who have been the custodians and caretakers of this land for tens of thousands of years. 
I thank them for the care they have taken and continue to take of country, the rivers, mountains, trees and animals. I'd like to honour this country, the elders of the past and present, and most importantly, the young, proud Aboriginal people who are the leaders of tomorrow. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Sovereignty was never ceded. Salt, salt, of the earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Salt Grass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com. I thought I'd start with what is the DHHS and what is their brief, really broadly speaking, just so people understand who you work for and where you're coming from. Absolutely. So the DHHS is the Department of Health and Human Services. And essentially the department has really quite a broad remit, but, you know, I guess the main objectives of the department are to make sure that everybody has an opportunity to live their life to the fullest. And our core role is around protecting the community and ensuring that they have good health throughout life. So that's kind of a health and well-being focus. Where I sit is in the public health part of the department, but more broadly, the department has carriage of things like overseeing public hospital, mental health, child protection, public housing. So it's really quite a big remit that sits across all of the health and human services in the state. So each state and territory in Australia would have an equivalent in their own region. That's right. Yeah. And in some cases, states will have a separate health department. And in other cases, like Victoria at the moment, we have a combined health and human services department, if you like. Well, I imagine those things overlap quite a lot, don't they? That's right. And we really work across, you know, I think you'll find with every government department, there's lots of different branches and divisions, but very much when you're talking about health and well-being, there is very much an integrated approach across all of the work that we do. All right. So how does your department relate to climate change? So I guess what are the health risks associated with climate change? And I think everyone's familiar with the health risks of bushfires, but what are some of the others? Absolutely. And you're right. I mean, bushfires are a really big one and and it would be really front of mind for lots of people in Victoria. And that's one of a category of what we call kind of direct health impacts. So, you know, we know that events like bushfires are becoming more frequent and intense as a result of climate change. And some of the other events that also pose risks and impacts on health include things like flooding. So as much as we're going to have overall less rainfall as a result of climate change and we're really already seeing that to date and that's projected to continue when it does rain we expect that we'll see more intense downpours and there can be significant impacts on health that are associated with flooding as well drought is another one as a direct impact as well so that's not only things like mental health that might be associated with drought but impacts on food security that can have flow and impacts for health as well severe storms is another one that, um, again, is a kind of a direct impact that can, again, have issues around injury, illness and death. And then we get into things that are more indirect that may not be so obvious. But some of those things include impacts on our drinking water supplies, impacts on food safety, air quality impacts. So, you know, directly from the fires, we can have injuries and, and deaths, of course. But bushfires also create large amounts of smoke. So air quality, you know, is an indirect um, impact on health. And then 
As well as that, we know that climate change impacts on what we like to call the social determinants of health and well-being. So that can impact on things like employment, transport, things that we need, you know, to facilitate a good life and good health. So those impacts are really broad. And when you think about, again, some of the more indirect impacts, people often talk about things like mosquito-borne disease. So we know that climate change was predicted to change the distribution of, of mosquitoes in different areas. And so, you know, how we experience those impacts is likely to change over time as well. Does that mean because the climate's getting warmer, say, in Victoria than it used to be, we're going to see things coming further down from the equator and reaching us that previously we hadn't had to experience in terms of disease and things like that? Is that what you mean? Yeah, so that's that's one of the um, potential impacts. And what we know that mosquitoes are really interesting because in some cases it might become too hot in certain areas for mosquitoes to survive. They or might too dry. Be, or too dry, exactly. So in Victoria, that might mean that at the moment, you know, you might see more mosquitoes that we're worried about that carry diseases up in the north of the state that might actually start to move further south into major population centres. But as you said, it's hotter doesn't necessarily mean more mosquitoes. It, we, you know, flooding is, is one of those things as well that we know back, for example, in 2016-17, Victoria had really significant floods up in the north of the state. And we saw the biggest outbreak of Ross River virus that we'd ever seen in Victoria that year that followed the floods. It's interesting, isn't it? Because the floods make the news, but I'm not sure that the Ross River virus outbreak would make the news except for locally. Exactly. And, you know, it is some of these more indirect impacts might not be so obvious. Like you said, the immediate impact is visions of flooding streets and cars washing away and impacts on people's homes. But, you know, generally following these kind of events, we do see other things, particularly in in the public health space. And, you know, also if you think about flooding events, if you think about food businesses, for example. So if you've got floodwaters that might be contaminated from sewage and other things that can um, contaminate food sources that can get into our drinking water supplies. So, you know, some of these flow and impacts, yeah, as you said, they're not often reported in the news, but where I sit in public health, those are the kind of things that we get very busy thinking about and working on and providing advice to the community around. So Yeah, that's interesting. So who's most at risk of the effects of climate change? I mean, we're all at risk, as you've mentioned, all of these things will affect all of us, but there will be sections of our community that are more vulnerable for different reasons. That's right. And those groups are quite varied. And sometimes that does depend on the hazard that you're talking about. So, for example, if you're thinking about bushfire smoke, we know that people with pre-existing heart and lung conditions, including asthma, will be more sensitive to the impacts of smoke and would be impacted in a greater way than people without those conditions. Equally, pregnant women Also, we know that smoke can impact unborn children, so that's another impact. Is that through oxygen deprivation in the mother? Yeah, it's kind of a combination, but typically with bushfire smoke, we're most concerned about what we call PM2.5 or fine particles, and those get inhaled into the lungs and can cause impacts. And And the impacts are quite broad when you look at pregnant women. But we also are concerned more broadly in a climate change and health space around older people. So, you know, typically people over 65, young children typically are more sensitive to lots of impacts associated with climate change. And in some cases, people with um, limited mobility, if you think about the need to evacuate. And also people in some cases that don't have great social networks, access to transport. So there can be other social 
factors that might mean that people are more vulnerable, if you like, to climate change. So, And I guess the other group that we think a lot about in, in public health is new arrivals to Australia, for whom English might be a second language, for example. They may not be familiar with our warning systems. And in some cases, if that information isn't readily accessible or understood or available in their languages, that can also be a risk factor. So there's a fair few, I guess, different groups that we need to think about. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess people who are newly arrived also may not really understand what to do in a bushfire, which a lot of us who have been raised in Australia might have just a bit embedded some knowledge, but they wouldn't have any. Absolutely. And so, you know, what one of the interesting, I guess, issues that we also work on in our, in our department is something called thunderstorm asthma, which is a phenomenon that results from kind of high levels of grass pollen and a certain type of thunderstorm. And that's not a phenomenon, for example, that we really knew about in a great way in, in Australia and that, you know, the general community, but particularly people um, who may not have been exposed to the types of allergens we have here in Australia would have even thought about. And so sometimes also we have events that might occur here that may not have happened in, in countries where people have come from. And so, you know, there's a need for us to really raise awareness of what are all those different potential risks and, and making sure people understand what they can do. Yeah, I feel like thunderstorm asthma is something, like I'm an asthmatic and I had never really heard of it until the last couple of years when suddenly it was coming up as a, a as a warning. Is, is it something that we've known about for a long time or is it a relatively new kind of phenomenon? Yeah, it's... It's certainly something that had been reported in the medical literature, and we had had previous small events in Australia. From memory, there'd been about five previous events in Melbourne, but they were really on a much, much smaller scale and really didn't get media coverage. So, you know, it might have been noted in medical literature or scientific literature, but the event that Victoria experienced in, in 2016 was the largest ever had been seen anywhere in the world. We had very sadly 10 deaths associated with that event and more than three and a half thousand people presented to public hospital emergency departments with asthma in a really short period of time. And so the scale of it was really off the charts internationally. And so it's certainly on, on everyone's radar now. And there's still a lot that we don't understand about why was that event so big? And, and also, is it likely that we might see more of those types of events as a result of climate change? You know, there's still some active research happening around that. But yeah, I think it's fair to say that you weren't the only one that had never heard of it before. It was certainly not a well understood phenomenon before, before that time. All right. So I guess this begs the question, what can we do about it? And often in climate change, there's sort of two streams of thought. One is mitigation, which is how do we make sure that the climate stays safe or as safe as possible, given emissions as they stand so far? And the other is adaptation. So how do we adapt to a changing climate? So how does the DHHS, let's start with mitigation. Do you guys work on mitigation? We certainly do. And I guess when we're thinking about health, the most important thing we must do is to prevent the worst of the possible impacts that we might see. And the way that we're going to do that is through mitigation. Prevention so is better that, than cure. <laughs> absolutely. So really, that that is a big focus for us. Directly, if you think about the types of emissions that the Health and Human Services 
system, if you like, would produce. We do have some emissions associated with our public hospitals. So you've probably heard that hospitals do produce quite a number of carbon emissions, but we also manage public housing in our department. So that's also a big focus for us. How, how do we work to reduce the impact of our own services through hospitals and public housing and other assets that we manage. So that's that's quite a big focus. Would that include things like installing solar panels on hospitals so they're not drawing energy from the coal-fired grid and insulation and things like that in your public housing? Is that the sort of thing you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, solar insulation and, and particularly in public hospitals is also a really big focus through our environmental sustainability area for public hospitals that works really closely with health services around even how can they reduce emissions associated with some of the processes they put in place and some of the products they use and some of the the things they procure. So there's carbon embedded in all of those things. So it's quite a holistic approach that the department takes to reducing emissions from the public health side of things, as much as we don't manage big assets, we have a big role in promoting work to reduce emissions because, as I said, the, the public health impacts associated with climate change that we're already seeing and are predicted to continue to occur are really significant. And so we have quite a role in trying to influence policy in that area and encourage rapid transition to a low carbon economy that really we are going to need if, if we're going to avoid the worst of the impacts that we might see. That's great. So, I mean, I guess as the Department of Health and Human Services, if you're talking to other departments outside of hospitals and, and the public housing that you guys oversee, you would have an impact on other departments who are trying to make decisions. Is that what you're talking about? Absolutely. And maybe it might be worth highlighting one of our recent publications. Last year, we published a new Victorian public health and wellbeing plan, and that's a state plan that aims to deliver improved public health and wellbeing outcomes. And in that, we now have tackling climate change and its impacts on health as one of four key focus areas. And that plan is, as I said, a, a state plan. And so it's within the remit of a whole lot of organisations, including other government departments, to implement the plan. And so that's a really key strategy at a state level that we use to work with state government and also local government and others to say, hey, we've got these objectives here. And, and one of those is around reducing emissions and realizing as well the health co-benefits that can be realized when you do reduce emissions. So that's a big one. And, and you're quite right. There are lots of different departments across Victoria that we work with on that. If you wanted to, I don't know if you want to talk about this, but the, the the Victorian government has recently released a whole suite of sort of economic stimulus slash new initiatives that seem to be heavily focused on carbon reduction and encouraging, I guess, change and growth in renewables and stuff. How do you see all of that fitting into this? Yeah, I can probably talk about what that means for health and just to use an example, you, you may have heard about some of the announcements that relate to public housing. So that's not essentially got a, quite a big focus on building new public housing and expanding public housing in Victoria. But with that, as I said, we've got a big focus in the department on whether we're talking about new builds, so new public housing or existing housing stock. How can we design our public housing in a way that is safer, if you like, for the community? So we make sure that we are building those facilities in a way that they will be both thermally comfortable, but also safe. So initiatives that are focused on reducing emissions and 
increasing, I guess, energy efficiency, those have flow on benefits for health. Because if you think about, if you're talking about putting in place insulation and that kind of thing, or solar that might help to offset things like air conditioning that we're going to need for hotter climates, that has flow on impacts because we know that buildings, if not designed in the right way, can pose real risks to health and well-being. So I think a lot of those energy efficiency initiatives, you know, we're really interested in that because they will, in a lot of cases, have benefits to health into the future as well. And really, all those reasons are excellent, but also the people who exist in public housing are are economically the most challenged. They're the sort of people who potentially may not run an air conditioner through summer because they're afraid of the electricity bill that'll come in. So if they've got solar and they know that they can run their electricity, then they can feel more comfortable and it'll be safer for them. Absolutely. It's really crucial. I'm sure you and your listeners talk about a lot. Climate change is already and will continue to pose the biggest risk to those that are economically disadvantaged and don't necessarily have the financial base to put in place measures around adaptation. And so that really needs to be front of line when we're designing future programs and thinking about particularly things like public housing. Yeah, really critical. All right. Well, let's talk about adaptation. So that is the idea. What can we do to help prepare ourselves for a changing climate? And I guess as individuals, there's lots of things that we could do, but in with the health lens on, what, what are some of the ideas? As I mentioned at the start, while the risks and impacts are quite broad, the interventions we need to put in place and how we need to adapt are also really broad and wide ranging as well. So I guess just to talk first about, you know, from a public health perspective, we're really keen to ensure that we reduce people's exposure to hazards. That's how we talk about these things. So if we talk about extreme heat, for example, we know that during significant heat waves, and we saw that, for example, in 2009, there was a major heat wave that led up to the Black Saturday bushfires, another really significant heat wave that we had in 2014. We did see a significant number of people present to emergency departments. We did have quite elevated numbers of excess deaths associated with those events. So when you think about that type of adaptation, how do we reduce people's exposure and the impacts they might have to events like that? And also a lot of those indirect impacts that I mentioned. The way that we do that in public health is we run like public health campaigns every year. So for extreme heat, for example, we have a public health campaign that we run every year. So that's, you know, a combination of things like social media posts, advertising, et cetera, to really alert people about the risks of extreme heat. Particularly when we talk about vulnerable people, for example, that might be things like recommending that people actually look out if they know they've got an elderly neighbor that lives next door who may not have family support around, might be checking in with older relatives. So that's one type of adaptation measure that we can take is actually making sure that people are aware of the risks and hazards. But also, if you look at things like extreme heat, we also have a heat health alert system where we provide advice of days where there might be increased risks of, of illness associated with heat. So that's, I guess, one category of adaptation is, is making sure that we raise awareness of risks and impacts. And that's really across that really huge range of potential impacts that I mentioned. Things like bushfire smoke, we work really closely with the EPA. People might know EPA runs an AirWatch program where you can actually go on their website and find out information about levels of 
impacts from from air quality on any particular day and particularly during the bushfires we know that that was a really popular form for people to go have a look at the website and then say oh, actually I can see that the air quality is really quite poor today I might decide today I'm not actually going to go out for a run during the day because the air quality is quite poor so that's like I said a big focus for us is what are all those different risks and impacts and what information do people need so they can make decisions I guess outside of public health campaigns and activities. We work really closely with local government, for example, who are implementing just a, a whole heap of different programs around adaptation. So again, if we talk about extreme heat, adaptation in the, in the health space can include things like tree planting programs, so increasing urban tree canopy, shade, so that we reduce the urban heat island effect on those hot days. So it's really quite broad. There's lots of things, I guess, that can be done in this space. Yeah, that's really interesting because we know our federal government at the moment is very reticent to act or even acknowledge climate change. So my next question relates to what you were just saying, which is how can our state government and our local councils really interact and what, what sort of relationships to, does local council have? Because, I mean, this program is talking about how my small community in regional Victoria can address climate change locally here and obviously there's a lot that's out of our control (laughs) with climate change but in terms of what we can do in small towns regional areas or communities in the cities or just individual spaces how does the department of health and human services support local governments in absolutely and i think really at a local level that's where we're seeing just amazing action happen across victoria and I mentioned before the state public health and wellbeing plan. What we've recently done is also published some guidance for local councils. So at a local level, councils across Victoria develop and implement plans that are called municipal public health and wellbeing plans. And because, as I said, we've prioritised tackling climate change and its impacts on health in the state plan, that carries through to the municipal plan. So councils really already have been implementing so many measures around both mitigating and and supporting community adaptation to climate change. So just this year, like I said, we published some new guidance for councils. And as part of that, we ran a whole lot of forums across Victoria to hear about what councils were doing in this space. And I have to say, personally, I was really impressed by what I saw. There's some fantastic action happening at a local level, really to tackle climate change, both from an emissions reduction perspective, but also supporting adaptation as well. And, you know, just a few examples that come to mind, particularly when you're thinking about regional communities. And, you know, for a lot of your listeners, that is really broad ranging. It could be anything from implementing community gardens at a local level that provide an increased source of local food production. We know there will be food security issues associated with climate change. There's also an urban cooling and greening element to that. So increasing participation in community gardening activities is is something we saw happening a lot across Victoria. Implementation of solar, for example, to offset emissions at neighbourhood houses and community centres and council facilities. We've seen a lot of focus around that. Like I said, urban tree planting initiative, implementation of things like bike paths that encourage active transport has been a fantastic initiative that we've only seen grow over the last few years. So that clearly has emissions reductions benefit, you know, provides the facilities that make it easier for people to use active transport to get to work or school, for example, in preference to using a vehicle. That's great for emissions reduction, but clearly from a public health perspective, there's also really great flow and benefits for physical activity, improved 
mental health and well-being, those types of initiatives. So really quite broad and wide-reaching. And, you know, I can't say enough about the momentum I'm seeing certainly at a local level in Victoria, which is fantastic. And so does the DHHS support these with funding or actual, like, hands-on assistance? Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a combat depending on which parts of council you're talking about. So certainly for neighbourhood houses, you might be aware the department does provide funding to neighbourhood houses, and that can be used for a wide range of different initiatives. The Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning is another key group in terms of funding and just linked to some of the work that I mentioned. There's a big focus at the moment within the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning, working with local councils and others to develop what they're calling regional strategic adaptation strategies. And as part of that, there is some seed funding. I know that that department, DELP, has actually provided to different groups within those areas, including local councils. But I know as well, there's a a recent report that's come out from the government. You might be aware of just on Friday, there was a parliamentary inquiry into tackling climate change and its impacts on Victorian communities. And I know there's some recommendations there around increased funding at a local level. So we'll see what comes out of that. But at various times, I know DELP has had quite a big role as well in actually providing direct funding for initiatives at a local level. So it seems to me there is interest in actually doing more to support that because budgets can often be a problem, as I'm sure you well know, at a local level. So Yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. All right, so I guess maybe a final question is, what would you think would be a community that's really robust in the face of climate change? What sort of things would you be seeing on the ground happening there? Oh, that's a tough one, Alison, but there's probably a lot in that, really. community I would see is robust, I think, and it's nothing new, but I guess if you think about when we've had major emergencies and communities that tend to fare better, and when we talk about emergencies, you know, we're talking about things, as I said before, that are increasing as a result of climate change, we will be seeing more bushfires. We will see overall less rainfall, but when it does rain, increased risk of flooding, those kind of things. So I guess community connection is a really big one and the ability of communities to actually, I mean, we talk about resilience. Some people love that word, some people hate it, but (laughs) what what does a resilient community look like? You know, it's a community that's connected, there's great support you know, amongst the community and where the community actually has a real role in preparing together for these events, but also recovering together and helping design the recovery within their own communities. Those initiatives tend to be the most successful, really. So it's not just handed to them from the government saying, this is how you do it. They've actually figured out how to do it themselves. And and then it's tailor-made for their community, isn't it? Absolutely, you know, and I think having the conversation, I mean, I think, you know, podcasts like yours are fantastic because, from an awareness perspective, that's another critical thing. You know, we really want people to be thinking about this issue, planning for potential risks and impacts so that we can avoid, as I said, the worst of those impacts. And so raising awareness, communities that are aware, connected, have avenues to access the information they need, put in place the plans that they need to put in place. That's really what we're after. So I guess those are some of the attributes that I think will help. And like I said, I think in large part, there are some fantastic examples happening across Victoria, both on the adaptation side, but also mitigation. The other thing, in terms of mitigation, we need to make sure that our buildings and our homes are actually resilient to climate impacts. And so, you know, I do think there's a need for greater investment there to make sure that our homes and other buildings are going to protect us when we're talking about hotter climates. And so where 
at a local level, those types of initiatives have been put in place. That's, that's only going to help us into the future. So there you go. That was Venora from the Department of Health and Human Services, a Victorian state government department, talking about how the state government is able to help facilitate and support communities as we head towards a climate-affected future. I will be hoping to follow on this theme of health in future episodes, looking in more depth at how people with disability might be affected by climate change and are currently being affected by climate change, and also um, how our local government is acting and supporting and getting proactive about climate change on behalf of our community. So stay tuned for those episodes. It might be a little while before they come out, but they're on their way. So again, there are links to many of the things discussed in the show in the episode description at saltgrasspodcast.com. For those of you listening on Main FM or 3MDR, please note that you can listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your preferred podcasting app. And if you can't find Saltgrass on your podcasting app, please let me know and we'll see what we can do to make it available on your preferred platform. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and please subscribe to our email list to get reminders and updates about the show. Again, you can do that by going to saltgrasspodcast.com. This program was made possible with support from Main FM and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au. My name is Alison Hanley. Thanks for listening. Salt of the Earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Salt Grass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com.